Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. My guest today is James Lawrence. If you heard our special bonus episode that came out this week, you know that it was recorded on the Rocky Mountaineer train traveling from Vancouver to Banff, Alberta. On the train, I spoke to the Rocky Mountaineer communications specialist, Jeff Pelletier. You can hear that uh, by going to our website, of course, at TravelTalesPodcast.com. And if you're listening on iTunes or Stitcher Radio, it's there. It came out earlier this week. But that was not the only interview I did on the Rocky Mountaineer train. There were a lot of media present on that train from all over the world, not only from the United States and Canada, but from Australia, New Zealand, Europe, and the UK. So it was a large group of journalists and bloggers and your various media types, and I got to meet a lot of them. And it was a cool experience. And one guy I met was a, uh, a travel writer from London. His name was James Lawrence. He's written for a lot of uh, publications, uh, mostly out of London. But it was a pleasure to meet him and uh, get to know him a little better. So I sat down with him while we were riding this train, passing through the beautiful Canadian Rockies, and I asked him about his life. So that's coming up in a bit. But before that, I want to tell you a little bit about the website. Go there, TravelTalesPodcast.com. Check out the article I wrote about the Rocky Mountaineer. That's under the article section, among many other articles. You can go there and listen to other podcasts as well, see the photos, and you can click on links to all our social media. And that is, of course, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. You can click on our link to Stitcher Radio, where you can subscribe. And of course, iTunes, where you can subscribe. And if you're on iTunes, why not give us a nice rating, huh? That helps people find the show and boosts our presence. And that's always a cool thing. And of course, it costs you nothing. I say that every week, but it's true. It costs you nothing but a few seconds. So if you can do that for me, I'd appreciate it. I enjoyed my time on the Rocky Mountaineer. It was a beautiful trip, and I talked about it a lot in the last episode, of course, but it's great if you get a chance to do it. But there is a lot of downtime riding the train as you're looking at this beautiful scenery, and you get to know your fellow passengers. No Wi-Fi on the train, which a lot of uh, journalists were freaking out about. I kind of liked it. I don't mind tuning off and getting off the grid for a little while. But uh, you get a chance to meet your fellow passengers, and I got a chance to meet James, and we sat down and had a little chat. So join us, will you, on the train, and get to know journalist James Lawrence. Your full name, and how long have you been a travel writer? Okay, so my full name is James Horatio Edward Fortescue Lawrence, and I've been a travel writer since, God, say I really got into it about 2011. And where can most people see your work? All, all over. Um, some magazines that I won't mention, because they're not, not for adult eyes, but um, <laughs> the City Magazine, which is based out in London, um, mainly London lifestyle magazines, Yahoo, Yahoo 
mayfair.co.uk. They have a lifestyle page, uh, something called the Mayfair magazine, something called City AM, but all all London based really. So oh, tele- I've done a bit for the Telegraph as well. Okay, but you have a uh, a specialty, and it's more food and wine, or more specifically wine. Yeah, wine is my passion. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just a great excuse for getting drunk every night. Exactly, that's a good passion. But it can be dangerous. It can get. I've known some other wine uh, people in the wine industry and writers and distributors and stuff, and that uh, there is a higher rate of alcoholism in that. Do you have to be careful? Do you see it? You know, of course. And we. It's really sad, actually. Every year we we lose a few souls, and but you know they know the risks. You know you're going to be drinking wine constantly, and yeah, it's very easy to become, as we say in, in England, a lush. But yeah, no, we. I probably do drink most nights. Yeah, it's true. But, you know, it's, it's with food, so that kind of, you, you kid yourself that you're not really an alcoholic because you're enjoying it with food and you're, you're savouring the bouquet and just because it's your 80th glass, it's okay because you're swirling it. And Of course. <laughs> so do you have uh, training in the wine business? Did you ever be, uh, take a sommelier class or do you have any kind of history in that? You know what? I didn't. I have, I've worked in, in wine retail, but my knowledge comes from my dad, who's a big wine collector, and just visiting vineyards. I've, I've, probably, you know, I've been to hundreds and hundreds of vineyards, and the best way to learn, I found, was just ask the winemakers a load of questions and drive them nuts. But that, mm-hmm. And also books and tasting, mm-hmm. you know? So, no, I haven't actually done any proper courses. It's all been kind of on the job. So now, so sommeliers and um, vineyard operators and everything, they will see you, and of course they want to impress you. But do they know that you have no formal education in this, and does that uh, bother them? Or is it, this is just one guy's opinion? I've been pulled up. I mean, yeah, a lot of people who write about wine, they do have WSET qualifications. But, but then I know people that don't who have done very well. So I don't think it's as important as uh, passion and, and, more importantly, an open mind. You know, never, never reach the stage where you think you've got nothing left to learn because that's obviously a load of old tosh. I mean, I still have a lot to learn, and there's always... You know, there's always new wines to taste, but I think no, I think qualifications come second to a passion and, and just a willingness to learn as much as you can, and, and like I said, an open mind. I know you've been to the states, you've been to California a little bit, and uh, and the, this part of the, the world, and, and I don't think it's your favorite region. <laughs> I imagine being out of London, That's you, libel. You, yeah, you're probably more attuned to you know French and Italian wines and things like that. So. You have a specific uh, favorite place you love to go in terms of wine regions? Yeah, I love I love Rioja in Spain because it's very beautiful and I used to live in Spain so I've got a real emotional connection to the country and you know I know a lot of the winemakers there. I love I love the wines. The, it, it's it's a very beautiful region like I said there's some great restaurants. So yeah, Rioja's probably, actually no Spain in Spain in general. I love Spanish wine, particularly also the whites from Galicia like Albarino and Cordelo, really beautiful white wines that you find a lot in the US actually on the east coast now. They're big in New York for example, so yeah, Spain, Spain. Spain is my kind of number one where is a region that pe- most people wouldn't think of for great wine but you've discovered it and you uh praise it all the time well some great stuff coming out of croatia in istria yeah. but ag- again that's not really particularly widely known some of the wines from the greek islands are fantastic santorini and cyprus are doing some really great stuff uh da, 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 where else i've actually had some decent wine from india as well india yeah yeah 
Now, I've, I've been to India. I can't imagine where the... Uh, where was the wine region? Must be up north. Yeah, the, 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 wine, the biggest wine region is called Nashik, and it's about three hours' drive uh, east of Mumbai. So you fly into Mumbai, and then you drive to Nashik. But there's some, there's some interesting stuff happening, but it's all very new. Like, it, it really started in the 90s. Um, the, the biggest brand, or the most important brand, is called Sula, and they make a whole range of wines, all international. You know, Sauvignon Blanc, they do a Chenin Blanc, they do a, they do a Shiraz, and it's, it's, it's nice stuff. And you're seeing it now in London, for example. A few Indian restaurants have it, and I, I think even a supermarket stocks in Indian wine so hmm. I mean it's not world class but it's a, it's a tight you know it's a very nascent industry but yeah I, I was I quite like some of the wines if there was a region of wine that you think is uh, overrated and overhyped where would it be oh let me think uh, could it be Bordeaux <laughs> could it be a region that produces everything from s- wines that go for stupid amounts that can often be disappointing in poor vintages to wines that shouldn't be made at all. Yeah, Bordeaux. Okay. Bordeaux, st- <laughs> Bordeaux has some great wines, but I've never been as disappointed as with uh, a Bordeaux, and just the prices for the top stuff, they've gone stupid. It's the preserve of millionaires and collectors now, mm-hmm. uh, which, which is not what I think wine should be about. That, you know, that said, there's a lot of very expensive stuff in California as well that perhaps has gone a bit stupid, but yeah... <laughs> This, this, you know, it's. If, I suppose if, if people can get away with it, why not charge, you know, five thousand dollars for a bottle of wine? But it's not. It's not in my budget. What are your thoughts on, uh, say, South Africa or New Zealand? Have you been to any of those places? Yeah, no, I've been to both. I mean, there's, there's a lot of exciting stuff, particularly in South Africa. You know, New Zealand's very well established now. The world knows that New Zealand makes world class wines, and in a way, there's kind of been a bit of a backlash because New Zealand made its reputation with Sauvignon Blanc, particularly in the UK. But now people, I think, are saying, "Well, let, let's see what else you can do." And it does do some other things very well. South Africa has come on leaps and bounds in the last ten years. Some of the lesser known regions, like Fals, kind of away from Stellenbosch, which is where everyone tends to gravitate to, are doing some really interesting stuff. So, I mean, look, the, the the point is, everywhere in the world, or most of the world anyway, is getting better. Yeah. And that, that's kind of the good and the bad thing, because, you know, you kind of think, where will it end? When are we going to reach complete saturation point for good wine? But, no, you, the, the, the days where you go to a restaurant in London and you'd see mainly French, maybe a few Italian, are long, 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 long gone, forever. Have you ever gotten a uh, bad uh, reaction to any kind of uh, feedback you've given or something you've written as a, a restaurateur or a vineyard? Uh, contacted you and said you were unfair or anything like that? Yeah, I was in South Africa in 2010 and I really hate the local grape Pinotage, which they're very proud of. I hate the tannins. I find the flavors like it's like sticking your head in a diesel engine. But but they're very proud of it. So I, I wrote a piece for a, a UK website called Harper's. And a, anyway, a local journalist blogger in Cape Town saw it and he put a piece on his blog basically saying I was, you know, can I use dirty language sure. on this interview? Uh, see you next Tuesday. Uh-huh. And that gotcha. I was talking a complete load of rubbish. <laughs> and, you know, who was this arrogant little upstart prick who's come to South Africa? And uh, I think he put a contract out on me. But I think, fortunately, he <laughs> lost, you know, he couldn't quite afford what, what they wanted for the hit. But, no, he's called, I think it's Neil Pendock. He wasn't too impressed with me. I don't think we'll, I'll be going to his wedding. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, so many people, especially now with places like Yelp and things like that, everybody fancies himself a restaurant reviewer. How do you break through that clutter and, and, and say, do you have to build up your own following of people who trust your opinions? And that, is that the secret? Well, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it, in one sense, people would say, well, it totally invalidates what you do. And mm-hmm. why is your opinion more valid than mine? And it's, 
it's an interesting one. I mean, it's like if you if you suspect you've got cancer, do you go to your doctor or do you go to your mate Jeff who says, "Oh, don't worry about it, James. Don't listen to your doctor." You know, don't in life don't we tend to gravitate towards the specialist? Yeah. So why why should food and drink be any different? But some would consider a specialist a chef and not a guy who just likes to eat. <laughs> yeah, but uh, how can a chef be subjective about his own food? He can't. Yeah, it's true. like I can't be subjective about my close friends, you know, or my family, or or you doing this interview because I like you very much. So, <laughs> so if you were, uh, well, thank you by the way. And have you been? Have you been to uh, Vancouver or any of the, this region before? No, no. Re- that, that's the great thing about this trip. I'm I'm a virgin. First time in Vancouver. First time. First time in British Columbia. Oh, really? and your thoughts? It's. Vancouver, I didn't really get to see much, which is a shame, but it just seemed like a very livable city, and that's what everyone says, isn't it? Clean, beautiful, seems like really lively as well. Um, As for the scenery, it's stunning, and it's... Look, I've been to beautiful places. I'm very fortunate I've been to beautiful places in Europe, which is obviously on my doorstep, but it never seems quite as raw and as unspoiled as as (laughs) North America. So I'm kind of just impressed with the... loneliness of the place you know we really are completely isolated let's talk about London for a second Mm -hmm. what is the latest uh, hot new trend in London and uh, what do you think uh, would you would be very happy to see go away god there's loads of trends (laughs) Uh, tapas is still very big Uh, Mm -hmm. sake's getting a little growing following pairing sake with Japanese food Um, all sorts of cocktail trends I mean there's so much what would I be happy to see go away Um, there's a real obsession at the moment with like making American fast food concepts trendy and expensive so such as well you know fried chicken oh right let's go Marjorie let's go spend 30 quid on some fried chicken because it's trendy (laughs) what a fabulous idea Horatio kind of it's not always a great idea to turn simple food into a trendified expensive concept it's like, like it's like you know it's like tapas I guess I love tapas but tapas in London are three times as expensive often as you pay in Spain because we've kind of turned it into a really trendy cool thing to do so it's kind of, they lose our origins a bit I think for people who are traveling to London where and if they're very into food and wine if there are places or regions or neighborhoods you can recommend God, where do you start? Um, for Indian food, uh, Gymkhana has won a lot of awards. That's in central London. Obviously, you can Google it. Gymkhana has some of the best Indian food I've had in my life. That's really fantastic. There's another place called Banaras in uh, Mayfair on Barclay Square. They it's superb food. The, the chef Atul, Atul Koshar is a really well-known Indian chef. He's Michelin star, by the way, and he, he travels the world. So he's, he's a really brilliant guy. Um, he's a lovely guy as well. If you like... Indian food. There's also Brick Lane in um, East oh, yeah. London. It's really, really famous. But it, you know, that's kind of more maybe it's more touristy. Yeah, maybe. But I, I'm just really mentioning the high end places. I mean, there's Indian restaurants all over London. Mm-hmm. Tap, like I said, Tapas is still very big. There's um, there's a really cool place in East London called Copita del Macaro, which is not long open. They they do fantastic food. A lot of Moroccan influences, and the food's really, really great there. Uh, Twenty eight fifty, um, which is a chain. But they, they've got, if you're into wine, they have an amazing wine list. If you're, it, actually, there's a, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there's a technology called Coravan where you can extract the wine from the bottle without pulling the cork. And there's oh. a few few places that have that now. And there's a really great restaurant in Mayfair again called Avenue where you can try all these kind of super expensive wines, but at a, I say affordable price, a price that's more reasonable. So you can just have a glass of, I don't know, Chateau Cheval Blanc or whatever. So it means you can try these wines where you'd probably never fork out for a bottle. Where can you, well, how can you extract the wine without 
removing the cork? How does that work? Well, I mean, Somalia did explain this to me, but it was a few weeks ago. Basically, a needle goes through the cork, extracts the wine, and then it's, it's sealed with argon gas, so it stops the wine oxidizing. Wow. So conceivably, you could pour six glasses over a two-year period... And the, you know the wine would be unaffected by oxygenation. It'd still be as fresh as the you know the first glass you poured two years ago. What's the biggest mistake tourists make when they go to London? Well, around Piccadilly Circus and Leicester Square, there are all these awful restaurants kind of touting for your business. Um, avoid them like the plague. Often, some of the best restaurants in London are not in the West End because obviously that's and you know they see tourists coming and they're rubbing their hands with glee because they don't have to try because they're probably never going to come back. So you know they can give you a plate of complete crap right. and and rip you off for it. So look, whatever you do. Don't just wander into somewhere. Seek recommendations. Look at blogs, websites. Ask your friends. Don't, you know, don't just wander in somewhere because I just I'd hate to think of you spending a lot of money and being disappointed. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we'll go to you. This is a kind of a standard rundown of questions that I ask people. Your uh, favorite country to visit? You could go back to over and over again. Spain again. Yeah, Sorry okay. to be boring. It's, <laughs> it's an intoxicating country, and not just because not just because you're part Spanish, though, aren't you? Yeah, distant. Yeah, okay. but um, other, it's a terrible cliche, but I love Croatia. A lot of people say Croatia. So do I. I've been there a few times. Really a big fan of Croatia. Um, I'd like to go back to New Zealand as well because I don't really see much. But you know, the truth is, I'm, I'm open to the world within reason. There's other than Spain, that you know, yeah, Spain, but Spain and Croatia, say. What is one country you'd be happy to never go back to again? <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, better be careful because we were a very eclectic group on this right. train. Uh, <laughs> there isn't so much a country as a region. I would happy never to be visiting again but uh-huh. I won't say it in case it offends anyone <laughs> <laughs> what was the worst flight you've ever had oh that's easy that was um, I just landed in Auckland after a 24 hour flight and then I got this little four seater plane it looked like it was being held together by super glue to Blenheim on the South Island yeah I, I'm a nervous flyer anyway I thought I was going to die because it was being really chucked all over the place you know and you really feel it in a, in a small aircraft and the pilot said there's going to be a few bumps and this British woman turned to me and said bloody hell if that was a few bumps what would a lot of bumps be in bloody imbecile she got very upset it was it was scary because we flew over a storm oh. that was that was pretty scary I thought I'd had my last bottle of Rioja <laughs> what about what is the strangest uh, food you've ever eaten in another country <laughs> strangest food like I had guinea pig in Peru I had insects in Thailand have you ever had anything uh, way off way off course not really I mean I've bush meat in South Africa but then that's totally yeah. normal um, probably the weirdest food I've had is in Wales where I grew up which is lava bread and it's kind of mushed up seaweed and it's bloody horrible it's the kind of stuff you'd give to your worst enemy if, if, if you really didn't like the, probably yeah probably lava bread it's, it's horrible British cooking has taken a lot of uh, stick over the years we, should, we could say but and a lot of it deserve it but it's getting better right I mean London you can get anything but you get out of town it gets a little bleak sometimes what, are there regions outside of uh, London that are, are great for foodies and, and wine people if they're visiting around the UK? Yeah, look, I mean, it, you know, it really, that is a dead cliche now. The, the, the kind of emerging generation of sh- British chefs have really taken the ball by the horns and haven't, you know, it's totally transformed. You, I can't imagine because, you know, I'm not old enough, but my dad says, you know, you have no idea how limited what was available was. Yeah. 
so Can, canned vegetables and you know, yeah. if there were vegetables at all. Actually, Bristol's a cool city to eat out. There's some really great restaurants in Bristol, but yeah, the southwest of England has some mm. really great places. Um, there's a lot of great restaurants in the north of England as well. I've had some really great restaurants. There's a restaurant called Onclume, which is in the north of England. That that has uh, two Michelin stars, I believe. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But the, the key is just re- research before you go. I used to make the mistake of just ch- chancing it, and that's kind of more fun. But you can end up, you know, you can end up being sorely disappointed. I would say just research. But yeah, Bristol. I, I, after London, I'd go for Bristol. I found it amazing that uh, you've never been to Scotland. When you said you've never been to Scotland or Ireland, I know you have your reasons, but that sounds fascinating. For a guy who likes to travel, really, you've never taken a weekend and just gone, hey, let's go to Edinburgh for a week. No, because it's it, it's that thing. When you live in a country, I like to go south. I like the sunshine, right, right. so I well, always head south. But look, if they're if they're prepared to let me in, it's very generous of them. I'm sure I'll go. <laughs> but ever since my flight with the Celtic supporters, it has put me off Ooh, a bit. That'll do it. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't think I was going to live through that one. <laughs> no, look, I'll go. But I guess I've got bigger priorities. But it's like I meet people in France who've never left. They've yeah. never really left their region, but they've explored all over the UK. You just grass is always greener, I guess. Yeah. Finally, what do you think of all the travel you've done and much of the world you've seen? How has that changed you as a person and how you look at the world and people in general? That's a funny one, isn't it? Because I don't always buy into the idea that travel automatically broadens the mind. I think sometimes it can be displacement. And I've met plenty of well-traveled people who are very bigoted and small-minded. But I think... For me, it kind of it made me want to learn another language because because mm-hmm. I learned Spanish in my adult life um, because I, so travel for me has opened me up to the idea that you shouldn't always just revert to English. So I, I try and learn a bit of the language where I'm going. So I think it's made me a bit more open-minded in that sense, and it's made me realise actually that cult- people talk about cultural differences. Certainly now in the era of globalisation, that's all becoming irrelevant. We, you know, things are actually quite similar whether you're in the US. Europe or even Asia now so I think in a way the more I travel the more I realise that globalisation is shrinking all these cultural differences and and I I think the world's becoming a lot more homogenous What's the most difficult Spanish accent you have to understand? For me it was down in Buenos Aires I didn't know what the hell they were saying no, actually, I was good with Buenos Aires. I found it quite soft. Um, for me, Madrid, because it's, it's like a machine gun intonation. It's like they want to kill you. <laughs> yeah, Madrid's pretty harsh. Um, you get by in Mexico, okay? Or is it uh, it's hard to understand? I've never been. Really? They've never let me in yet. Okay. It's quite understandable. <laughs> Not much wine, but the, uh, the food is good. Yeah, the food is great. I, I actually, I really, that's high on the list, top mm-hmm. five. I really want to go to Mexico City and probably not Cancun because I'm no, probably, no, probably outgrown it. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's beautiful places and it's a big country and varied. Yeah. Are you a tequila fan? No. <laughs> Scotch? Whiskey? Yeah, yeah, I love whiskey, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, you, you've been, what was your favorite place? Um, no, as much, I mean, in Mexico? Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, haven't, yeah. I haven't seen as much Mexico. I've been to Maya Riviera. I've been to uh, Cozumel because I'm a scuba diver. So there's a lot of that. But I have not been to the really the West Coast at all. And Yeah, so I'm, I'm hoping to get there soon. But, again, it's like you going to Scotland. It's right there, so I think, ah, I can always go. You know what I mean? And, and plus, I live in L.A., and Mexico comes to me <laughs> really <laughs> by the truckload every day. Uh, but... Sure. Uh, well, thanks for sitting down, man. That was great. Hey, no worries. Anytime. Where can um, people see your work? And do you have a blog or anything? Or you can send them to somewhere? 
Yeah, I have a wine blog, the wineremedy.com, which I need to update, actually. Been on the road a lot. But, uh, I mean, like I say, it's main, mainly London-based publications, but the, I suppose the most international ones are The Telegraph. Um, I've done some stuff on Rus- Russian culture for The Telegraph, but, yeah, mainly London magazines. So you'd have come to London. Uh, but thanks. It was no great. Worries. Thanks, man. That was fun. You've got to do it.